Our epistle today is um, taken from, we continue to read, and we will be reading uh, this epistle for uh, a little while longer, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, continuing on in Ephesians 6. And uh, even though we, we've, um, we've preached from this already, I'm going to read uh, the passage again from verse 10 up to verse 20. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. God, our Father, as we approach your holy word today, we recognize that we are unable to hear you unless you open our ears. We are unable to receive from you unless you give us good soil in our hearts. And so we pray now for good hearts to receive the seed of your word. We pray for faith, O Lord, to obey the word of the Lord today. We pray, Father, for the, uh, the giving of the gifts of repentance today and the giving of the gifts of faith, Lord, to look up to you and to lay hold of you and all of that your kingdom offers to us. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together, may they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I alluded to a moment ago, um, I'm, I'm plotting my way through Ephesians 6. And you know sometimes when a candy tastes really good and you don't want it to, to go away, so you let it kind of sit in the back of your mouth and, and kind of dissolve <laughs> slowly? I'm finding this with Ephesians. I, I, I don't want to get through it too quickly, and I want to ponder our way through it and uh, to, to nourish ourselves upon the good doctrine here in Ephesians 6. So bear with me. And the apostle gives us seven pieces of armor today, and I want to consider two of them uh, today, and, and then in, in a future Sunday, we're going to pick up more of them. Uh, I think that what we have here in Ephesians 6 is one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament. Paul sets forth the Christian life here in Ephesians 6 in a uniquely pictorial and in a uniquely powerful 
uh, way. It's, uh, it's something that he gives to us that forbids us as God's people to uh, limit our Christianity to a school of thought. Christianity has much more to do with uh, than thinking. It's much more than armchair theorizing. Christianity is active. Christianity, in Bishop Ryle's words, is muscular. Christianity means exertion. Christianity is a fight. And uh, if there's one thing that I've learned from the Puritans, and I've learned many things from them, if there's one thing I've learned from them, it's a notion of the embattled life. This was one of the most important metaphors for the Puritans, that life in this world is a battle. It's a warfare, and the Puritans thought of themselves as pilgrims, and they thought of themselves as warriors across the board, and not just the great William Gurnall who wrote that big fat tome on the Christian and complete armor, but all of the Puritans keep returning to this theme that to be a Christian is to be a warrior. And they knew that this life was a fight. And if you're not fighting, and if you're not routinely sweating and smarting in the heat of battle, then you're not a disciple. And you're not experiencing Christian discipleship. And they thought this way, and they wrote this way, and they lived this way because they'd read Ephesians 6, and they believed Ephesians 6 as a word of gospel command. And my prayer today is that by God's grace, we can learn to live likewise. And with Baxter, the great Puritan, to realize that the power of godliness lives in the actions of the soul in an active life. And I pray today that we will realize what St. Paul says is true when he says that we are called to be good soldiers and that we must not in this life get entangled in civilian pursuits. Why? because we want to please the master who's enlisted us into his army. Several weeks ago, we, um, we considered verses 10 to 12, and we reckoned together that the forces of evil are simply too strong for us. If we do not wear the armor of God, as he's asked us to do, we will fall. If we do not wear the armor of God, we will be pierced by many arrows because Satan is too strong for us. And if any of us has presumed that we're very clever, then we need to know that Satan is far more clever than we are. He is far more, a million times more intelligent than we are here, even combined in this room. Without the armor, Paul says, we will fall. Without the armor, we will disgrace the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice today, first of all, in verse 13, that Paul urges that we take up the whole armor of God. Partial armor doesn't work. We can't pick and choose. If you're a man of prayer, but not a man of the word, all of your zeal and your spirituality will leave you defenseless. You're merely a child in the faith. You're energetic but you're tossed to and fro by the winds of doctrine, Paul says, carried about with no sure anchor in Jesus. You turn away from listening to the truth, even though you pray all the time, and you wander off into meaningless myths, Paul says, if you're not a man or a woman of the word. And the devil takes you captive. 
and he fixes your soul on small things and the devil diminishes you. Which is his primary intention in life. The devil wants to make you small because great Christians glorify God. And the devil wants nothing more than to, to diminish and to rob God of his glory. Likewise, if you're a woman of the word, but not a woman of prayer, then all of your knowledge and all of your doctrine leaves you vulnerable to the devil. You've got a head full of facts. You've got a head full of Bible trivia, but they're cold. And worse than that, they make your head hard. Because Bible without prayer makes us proud. Because it's in prayer, the only place that we draw near to the majesty and the greatness of God, and it brings us to that place of humility, which is the only place that we can understand the doctrines that the Bible is teaching us about God. And so the one who reads her Bible but never really prays is always learning, but she's never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. The prayerless reader has an appearance of godliness, the prayerless devotee to the Bible has the form of godliness, but she denies the power thereof. She knows nothing of the rush of the Holy Spirit in her life, and she knows nothing of the majestic awe of the majesty of God, which only comes in the place of frequent prayer. And so the life, the energy, the unction of God is missing from their lives, and they're vulnerable to the devil. So Paul says today, take up the whole armor of God. Everything I've named here, take it all and nod its various parts. Now we have seven pieces of armor, as I've said today here. We have a belt. We have a breastplate, a shoe or shoes. We have a shield, a helmet, a sword. And then finally, we have the weapon of all prayer. Now we have to be a wee bit careful here that we don't stretch the metaphor too far. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul will mix things up a bit. He'll talk now there about not the shield of faith, but Paul will talk about the breastplate of faith. And we can get a bit too scientific and a bit too exacting about what Paul meant in assigning a specific virtue to a specific body part. The important thing for us today is to catch the general idea of the battle at hand and uh, what these virtues are meant uh, to do in our lives. It's also important today to recognize as we work through this passage that whatever Paul is talking about here, every piece of armor is something that the Christian can choose not to wear. That is to say, Paul is not talking about what is ours inherently as Christians. Paul is not talking about what is ours inescapably as believers. We can't choose to put off our salvation. I'll take that helmet of salvation. I'll just put it over here for a bit. We can't choose to take off the righteousness of Christ. I'll just take that off and put it there for a bit. That's not what Paul is talking about. But we can choose to put off those virtues that will make us ill-equipped to fight manfully under the banner of Christ against the world and against the flesh and against the devil. We can choose to put off those virtues and those qualities that will make us weak and that will diminish us 
as God's people, and that will end up, no doubt, disgracing the gospel of our Lord. We can choose to put off things that will make us not useful to the Master, as Paul says to Timothy. And the first of these things that we can choose to put off or to put on, as Paul says, is the belt of truth. Now, in order to distinguish the belt of truth from the sword of the Spirit, which sound awfully similar to each other, after all, the word is truth, the Lord Jesus says, in order to distinguish these two things, we should understand truth here, as Calvin rightly understands it, as sincerity. What Paul means by the belt of truth is the absence of hypocrisy, just like we read today in the Gospel. I think this is especially fitting for us in the 21st century, this age of the avatar, this age of the digitally projected self, where we are taught again and again in sincerity to project our glossy selves, to project our airbrushed self, which has no correspondence to the reality of who we really are. And so in this 21st century, in this age of mask wearers, it takes great effort to tear ourselves from the spirit of the age and to reckon with who you are, not with who you project yourself to be. To wear the belt of truth is, as Calvin writes, not to live in hypocrisy for the praise of man. It's not to live our lives seeking the stroke of our fellow humans and their approval, but rather it's to seek only the Lord's approval in everything we do, even in a society that is drunk with desire for human approval. I mean, it's a disease. I see the most stomach-turning instances of this. Not too long ago, I saw a well-known evangelical reformed pastor taking a picture of his study on Saturday night, his Bible on his table, little soft glow, takes a picture and he says, preparing a feast humbly. For, what do you say? Yeah, no, uh, humble to prepare a feast for the people of God. As if he just couldn't keep it to himself. As if he just couldn't keep it between him and the Lord, but had to tell everybody, look at what a man of God I am. Look how faithful I am. Look at me, everybody. And another instance of a man who posted a picture again, a, a big name, reformed evangelical celebrity, who posts a picture of his youth as a barrel bare-naked, chested self with a caption saying, with those pecs just, you know, uh, a, a flex for everyone to see. What an amazing grace that God chose to save a wild thing like me. <laughs> Humble. <laughs> you see, we crave these things as a society and we're taught to, to want, as we stick out our chests for everyone to see, to want the prey. It's sick our desire for the praise of man, the appetite for approval, the appetite for followers, for likes, for recognition. It's a disease, and it knows nothing of gospel humility, and it knows nothing of the sincerity of the belt of truth, which wants nothing but acknowledgement from God. 
It wants nothing but approval from God, and it wants to project nothing but its own real self. Listen to Thomas A. Kempis, uh, the old spiritual Dutch master. He says, if you will know or learn anything profitably. Now listen to this very carefully. If you will know or learn anything profitably, desire to be unknown and to be little esteemed by man. To wear the belt of truth is to reckon sincerely with our brokenness and our sin, not the insincere Christmas letter, not the letter that tells everyone who cares to read it and all those who don't care to read it that their life is just perfect and little Johnny and little Susie are doing everything they ought to do and even the things that they don't need to do, they do those as well. Not the insincere Christmas letter, no, not that, but the belt of truth is the sincere acknowledgement that at the very best of our moments, we are unprofitable servants, and every day we fail to do what we ought to do. And the evil that we don't want to do, that we hate even, even that we do. The belt of truth tells us each day that the most fitting posture to end our day is to lie prostrate on the floor and cry out as we sang today, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You see, the Christian wearing the belt of truth is self-effacing. The Christian wearing the belt of truth doesn't let his left hand know what his right hand is doing. The Christian wearing the belt of truth doesn't advertise her worth or her deeds. She doesn't say, look at me. The Christian wearing the belt of truth knows how little worthy she is apart from Jesus. And she says with Jacob, I am worthy of the least, Lord, of your mercies. Rabbi Duncan, the old great Presbyterian Scotch minister, minister of the Free Church of Scotland, he was a 19th century professor of Hebrew uh, in Edinburgh. And uh, one day he was at a, a meeting uh, of uh, Presbyterians and there was a gospel message. There was a gospel call. An old godly John Duncan, nicknamed Rabbi Duncan for his interest in Hebrew language. Old godly Rabbi Duncan at the gospel call. There was a call for sinners to come forward to Jesus. A little section of pews was offered for the, the Christ seekers to find an old godly Rabbi Duncan walks down the aisle and he sits himself in that pew. One of the deacons comes along and says, oh, Professor Duncan, this is for the unconverted. <laughs> the old man says, I know. The belt of truth opens us up to warts and all. Cromwell, we're told, when he had his portrait painted, he said, and he urged the artist, make sure you put my warts in the picture, because that's who I am. And without this kind of warts in all sincerity, my brothers and sisters, without an honesty and a truthfulness about ourselves, a hunger that seeks only God's approval, without this belt, the armor falls apart and we are left defenseless to the devil's schemes, and we grow proud. And like the world, we grow self-enamored. And like the world, we grow small. God wants to raise giants. The devil wants to diminish us to gnats before the Lord. 
the belt of truth. Next, in the same verse, Paul names the breastplate of righteousness. Now, when I was a young man, I was taught that what Paul meant here by righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. The blood-bought righteousness of Jesus imputed to us by the cross. Now, again, you can see what a terrible mistake that is to think that I can take off the imputation of Christ's righteousness at will on and off when I want it and when I don't want it. The born-again believer is always perfectly righteous before God. The standing can't be lost. It can't be put off. This is the secret to a peaceful conscience. This is the secret to a good night's sleep, to know that I am accepted in the beloved and that we are the righteousness of God. Why? Because God has joined me. He has united me mystically to Christ. I am bone of his bone. I am flesh of his flesh and nothing not my worst of sins, can take the righteousness of Jesus from me through the cross. But there is another righteousness that we can put off. Now, if you've grown up in certain theological circles, you've been taught that the word righteousness is uniquely applied to Jesus. Righteousness has to do with the Lord's holiness and godliness. It's the merit of Jesus. And it isn't really fitting to use righteousness to talk about our own moral endeavor. But of course, that's all hogwash. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful passions and pursue what? Pursue righteousness. Righteousness, holiness, godliness. These are terms describing the same thing that is the pure and the straight and the upright moral life that God calls each of us to in the gospel. And so what Paul means here by the breastplate of righteousness is a godly life. Simply put, that is without endeavoring to be godly, without endeavoring to be holy, to pull as far as possible away from sin, to fight sin, to mortify sin, to put sin to death, to run like Joseph away from Potiphar's wife and to be done with it. When we don't have this attitude and this activity, we are not wearing the armor of God. And it's very clear to me how very important this piece of armor is. Look at verse 13. Paul tells us that the day is evil. And in verse 12, he uses a blanket statement and he calls the world what? This present darkness. Jesus, if you remember in his own words in Mark 8, he characterizes the world by this phrase, this adulterous and this sinful generation. And then when the Apostle John goes to describe the world, he says in 1 uh, John, the whole world, he says, the whole thing, it lies in the grips, it lies in the power of the evil one. Big blanket statements. And so it's clear to me that temptations will not only abound in this life, but the world is characterized by temptation. You being what, says Jesus? You being evil. The world is dark, and the world is characterized by evil things, and you can't turn left and you can't turn right in this world without seeing something that exalts itself against the notion of God. You can't walk down a corridor in the grocery store without finding something that exalts itself against the godliness of God in this world. It is everywhere. And so the point here, in Ephesians 6 is that when we aim to live the Christian life, 
We can't put on the breastplate casually. We can't turn away from all this darkness casually. We can't stroll the world without breaking a sweat and expect to escape the vanity that's going to dull our Christian testimony. Paul says you must put on this breastplate. The breastplate of righteousness, of godliness, of holiness takes deliberate effort. It costs us something. Yes, it is God's. Yes, it is his strength. It is the power of his might. But there's something that we must do. We must work out that which God works in. And so going back to Joseph, remember that he had to leave something behind. As he fled from the temptress, he had to leave his garment in the hands of Potiphar's wife as he said, how can I possibly do this? Great evil in the face of my God. And so today it is very important to realize that the breastplate is not ours by virtue of being a Christian. The breastplate is not ours by virtue of being a Christian. And every now and then it behooves us to sit down and to take a kind of a spiritual inventory and ask ourselves, what am I doing in order to gain godliness? What am I doing in order to gain the righteousness that God desires of me? Many of the old godly Puritan divines, they wrote about fasting routinely for holiness. They were so earnest in their desire to put off sin and to put on righteousness that they would set apart days regularly each week when they would cry out to God to make the crooked way straight. And they would say, oh Lord, more than I hunger for food, I hunger for a godly life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Is what Paul says here in Ephesians 6 so real to us? Is it so true to us? Is it so defining to us that we're willing to go a day without food to say to God, oh Lord, I want to be holy. I want to be more like you. I am ashamed of my sin. I know I can't get there apart from you. Oh God, I am desperate for godliness in my life. Paul said, if you remember, that he had to buffet his body. Paul had to punish his appetites lest they got the better of him, lest in his hunger for the world he lost his appetite for another, for the, for the heavenly life. And the thing is here, that without this godliness that Paul talks about, this breastplate of righteousness, there is no way that we can have a real appetite for God. My brothers and sisters, the things of God will be dull to you. Prayer will be a chore to you. Church will be a chore to you. You'll go there, you'll go through the motion, but your affections will be cool. Your affections will be cold and half-hearted because as we habitually grieve the Spirit of God in our neglect of the pursuit of godliness, we'll know little of the intimate rush of His presence in our lives. And we'll know little of the thrill of beholding the holiness of the Lord. <laughs> Without holiness, Hebrews 12, 
no one will see the Lord. Without a godly life, without a pursuit of a godly life, oh Lord, I hunger for godliness, you will not see the Lord. And not seeing the Lord, you cannot want Him as you're supposed to do. My brothers and sisters, as the people of God, we're supposed to be different. We are supposed to be different. We're supposed to stand apart from the world. John Owen, the, the prince of Puritans, he writes and he says, Church, it belongs to you. It belongs to you to labor for godliness in such a way that the world is judged and it's condemned by your holy and separate lifestyle. It looks at how you live and it shakes and it trembles in your presence. It is judged by your life because you're different than they are. And yet it's the Lord's constant complaint that his people have become just like the nations. It's the Lord's constant complaint that his people have become just like the countries around them. They look and they long over the fence at the world and all of its many idols and they learn its ways. Singing the old Keith Green song today as I came into church. My word sits there upon your desk, but you love your books and magazines the best. You prefer the light of your TV. You love the world, and you're avoiding me. You used to pray, you were so brave, but now you can't keep one appointment we've made. I gave my blood to save your life. Tell me, tell me, is it right? <laughs> is it right? So let me ask you today, my brothers and sisters, with the, the word of the Lord before you, this breastplate of righteousness in view that Paul says we must put on the pursuit of a godly life, what are you letting your eyes look at? What are you letting your mind savor of this world? in all of its worldly ways? What kind of bitterness and covetousness and envy, anger and pride and selfishness and boastfulness and vanity and self-exaltation, self-admiration, what kind of sins are you giving secret refuge to? Secret harbor to let that ship of sin sail into the harbor of your soul and you just anchor it there and you keep it safe. And you let it go on. Isaac Ambrose, the Puritan minister, writes that if we're tempted to coddle and to cherish sin, we should light a candle and we should put a finger in the flame and we should see how long that finger can stand its flesh being seared and melted. And once we can bear it no longer, we should ask ourselves how long our souls could endure the fearful torment that every sin deserves. Because the Apostle Paul tells us, my brothers and sisters, in no uncertain terms, that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as is proper to saints. Don't watch it on your TV screens. Don't put it on your TV screens. Don't utter it from your mouths. Don't think the thought. 
Go far from these things. Oh, you men of God, flee from these things. You men of God, be like Joseph. Run away from these things. Have nothing to do with them. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, he says to us today. And so, brothers and sisters, let the word of God confront you. These are not Paul's suggestions to you today. These are gospel commands. Put you on the armor of God. You do it. Stop turning away from it. Stop giving yourself to all these lesser pursuits, but give yourself to these things entirely, he says. And God's might in God's grace, in God's unlimited power will be yours if you just open your mouth wide and you let him fill it. And so next week or the weeks, in, in one of the weeks coming, I'm going to carry on with Ephesians 6 and I want to talk to you about the devotional life. I want to talk to you about prayer and I want to talk to you about the word. I want to talk to you about the seeking of the face of God, which is your life. You can't do without it. You cannot get up in the morning and not seek God. It's everything to you. And so I want to urge you in a Sunday to come and help you to think about how you can prioritize your life to seek God and put on this armor without which you will fall and you will bring shame on the Lord's name. So my brothers and sisters, with the word in front of us today, let me ask you these questions. Are you sincere? Am I sincere? Do I seek only the Lord's approval? Where are my eyes on man rather than God? And do I really hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do I do everything that I can do to be as far from sin as I can possibly be and as be as close to the Lord Jesus and to his gospel, which is the only source of strength in this life. Brothers and sisters, let's be different. Let's be different. And God help us this day to do this in his might. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let's stand today, my brothers and sisters, as we confess the one faith